Uh, do you believe that regenerating hearing will actually resolve tinnitus? Probably, yes. It could have a very positive impact. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tinnitus Talk. Today, we're discussing a topic that many of you have been waiting for for a long time, hearing regeneration. It's a topic that gets a lot of hype on the Tinnitus Talk support forum, and we've received loads of requests to make a dedicated podcast about this. It took us a while to find the right person to interview, but luckily we found Professor Marcelo Revolta from Sheffield University in the UK, who's an expert on stem cells and their application for hearing regeneration. He's great at explaining this very complicated topic in layman's terms, so even if you're not deep into the research yourself, give it a try because this is fascinating science. We want to thank David Stockdale from the British Tinnitus Association for facilitating this interview. He put us in touch with Marcelo, and he also conducted the interview on-site in Sheffield, together with our Tinnitus Talk member and former director, Steve Harrison. I want to take a moment to again thank our so far 11 Patreon supporters. You're helping us stay afloat, but we do need more support to continue to produce this podcast and make it even better. So please... Visit us on tinnitustalk.com backslash podcast for information on supporting us or to provide your feedback. We're always happy to hear from you. Now, I won't detain you any longer. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Tinnitus Talk podcast. And with me today interviewing is David Stockdale of the BTA. Hi. And we're interviewing Marcelo Revolta, who's from University of Sheffield and a specialist in hearing regeneration. Hello, Marcelo. Hello, Steve. Um, first of all, can you give us a little bit about your education and background in the research? Uh, sure. Yeah. I originally trained as a medical doctor, as a physician. Yeah. But very early on in my career, I moved out of clinical work and I concentrated in doing lab work. So I'm fundamentally a scientist, but I have a medical background, which is uh, pretty useful in this case. And uh, I've done my career in academia, and I am now a professor of sensory stem cell biology here at the University of Sheffield. Excellent. So what sort of background do you have in the, in the stem cell and the hearing generation research? What sort of projects have you worked on today? Yeah, uh, for a number of years now, we have been working with stem cells, with human stem cells, particularly with a type of stem cell which is called pluripotent stem cell. Uh, there are two flavors of this type of stem cell. One is called embryonic because it's taken from very early stage embryos. Uh, the other one is called induced pluripotent, and that is a technology that allows you to basically turn any cell of the body, like a cell from the skin, into these pluripotent stem cells. Pluripotent means that if you're giving this cell the right instructions, you can make them produce any cell type of the body. And what we have done in our work is develop techniques and methods to produce ear cells out of these pluri human pluripotent stem cells. Excellent. And so what does that mean? Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, it means that if you are thinking about regenerating and repairing an organ like the ear, which have very little, if not, if no capacity at all to repair itself, then you need to produce the right building blocks, the right bricks to repair the ear. And those bricks, those building blocks, are the cells that you produce with stem cells. So we, we've done that in the lab, and then we have put it into a model of hearing loss, into the animal that we use is called gerbil. And the reason why we use the gerbil is because the hearing of the gerbil is very similar to the human hearing. It's better than, it's closer than mice or rats, for example. 
and we put it in 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 a gerbil that was deaf that had the the type of deafness it has is the nerve that is damaged particularly and we saw that the cells integrated and they produce a functional recovery so that's the kind of proof of concept proof of principle that we have done are using stem cells to do this kind of repair and regeneration. So what would be the next steps for that for that work? How, how do you take it forward? Yeah, specifically for this work, there are a series of things that we need to do. We need to show that the cells themselves are uh, safe. Because also when you're dealing with stem cells, particularly when you're dealing with these pluripotent cells that can do a lot of different things, you need to make sure that they will not produce tumors. Yeah. And one way of doing that, first of all, is making sure that these undifferentiated cells are not longer in the mix, that you 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 put only the cells that are already uh, programmed to be an ear cell, uh, but also uh, you test this in different ways in the lab and in animal models. And I have to say, so far, these are still things that are happening, but so far we haven't seen any concern or any, any problem. Uh, and also, we need to uh, evaluate other things about the cells. For example, uh, the resilience long term of these of these uh, transplants and things of that sort. Everything that we're doing is sort of with the idea of, in the near future, being able to go into our real target population, which are the human patients, basically. I was going to say some of that must have to be quite long term by its nature then to to check that it's yes. not um, doesn't turn into a tumor and to check that it's safe and exactly and works. exactly yeah. and that's why all this research takes a long time to do uh, and we want to be very thorough and very uh, careful uh, and, and and very certain that when we get there we get there with all our tools I know sometimes if you are uh, uh, if you're suffering this condition then there is an anxiety to, to say, well, this research doesn't move faster, well, we don't care faster, but we have to make sure that we get there at the right time with the right information. And that's why it takes, it takes time to get there. So in terms of the safety profile, how far off, if you could give an estimate, do you think it is from having the correct safety profile to look at human trials? Yeah, there, there are different levels in the way that you handle that. There is one level that you do it kind of a, a, a research context, and then you have to move it more in kind of like a, a industrial manufacturing type of context. But I'll say we are hoping that in the region of maybe three or four years, we could start with a clinical trial. Uh, Let's bear in mind that clinical trial doesn't mean that you are going to be able to go to your doctor and say, I want this source to put in my ears. Clinical trial, it is still research. It is still research, but under very controlled conditions in a hospital, which is at a very strict protocol, using patients, but it's still research. So, but, but that's it's a very important step because you are trying now this in the right population in the right group of people, the patients basically, it's no more in the lab. And something I've always really struggled to understand a little bit when we're talking about hair cell regeneration within the cochlear is how do you know you're going to target the right area where there is hearing loss? Because there's lots of different hair cells, there's lots of different connections. How do you know to target the area? Yeah, that, that is still a challenging point. Uh, the way that we are approaching this is at this moment, our initial target, we're not going for the hair cells, we're going for the nerve. We're going okay. for what is called neuropathic deafness. We are trying to replace the cable that connects the hair cells with the brain. The hair cells are 
something that we hope to, to target in the in the future. But at the moment, it's, it's far more challenging. One of the reasons is because it's very difficult to get to the place where the hair cells are, sort of surgically. Uh, but I think the technology and the and the research that we do and that we are developing will, we hope that will make will allow us to make that leap a, a quicker one once we get everything established for the for the nerve and, and for the nerve is the one that we already have nice data from the animal models. So th- this would be the synaptic connection, which would be what's often referred to as hidden hearing loss that you're targeting. Yes, in yes, in a way. A hearing hearing loss is a little bit more complex than that because hidden hearing loss sometimes it could go it's it's, it's a it's a range of uh conditions or problems that it could go from just the loss of the synapses, but you still have a neuron and you still have a hair cell. And when you basically you lost it just the connection. Two, in the more extreme cases, the complete disappearance of the fibers and of the of the neurons. So for what we think we are going to be targeting is when most of the neurons are gone rather than just the, the connection, the synapses, which is one of the things underlying hidden hearing loss. Yeah, because I think I remember from, I think it was from a TRI talk, by was it Charles Lieberman that said, was it 95% degradation before you actually notice uh, yes. in your hearing? Yeah. Yes, but the, the, the thing that is very uh, poignant and the point that is important to take about hearing, hearing loss is that the nerve always been seen as like, well, it's not as important. The hair cells is everything and the nerve. And what Charles Lieberman's research shows is that the nerve is very important and also is probably the first hit. The first thing that it drops is the nerve. And then you start seeing all sorts of other problems. So it's, it's, it's changing a little bit the way that we, we're looking at the problem. So effectively that, because I think what I remember is that the nerve is the first thing that gets damaged as well. Yes. And it, it takes the most damage. It, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And traditionally, we always thought that it was the hair cell, the, the one that first gets damaged, and then the nerve sort of drops off as a consequence. But that kind of research and that kind of data starting to show that the nerve can be a primary target on its own right, and you can lose neurons before tending to lose hair cells. And I mean, we're, we're touching on broader research in the, in the area of hearing regeneration as well. I mean, is there anything beyond the University of Sheffield that's happening in the field at the moment that really excites you? Yes, yes. There are a few things. I mean, I think on the last few years, we have seen kind of a, a revolution of things coming together from different disciplines into our, our, our field. Specifically in the hearing field, there are other, th- and in the regeneration field within hearing research, there are other things which look quite promising as well. There has been uh, a bit of a movement regarding uh, gene therapy uh, and also the use of some small molecules. Uh, those are little drugs, basically, some pharmac- pharmacological uh, agents that the idea is that they could do some trigger, some sort of internal repair. The problem is at the moment, all these are a bit, although there is data supporting some of these strategies, uh, it's a little bit uh, very early days for all these therapies. And and because there are different ways of producing deafness, I think it's very interesting to explore these other things and mm-hmm. see which one will deliver and produce a, a, right, a right answer. And probably in the end, it will not be just one yeah. strategy. Yeah. It will be a combination of strategies or different strategies for different problems. And so it's almost we need to subtype hearing loss more effectively yes, first yes. as well. Hearing loss, we, we tend to, to talk about deafness or hearing loss as a single entity, but it's not a single entity. It's, it has different causes, different uh, 
parts of the year which get affected, and, and these different strategies will will be need to be targeted in slightly different way. So I guess a, a challenge once we start to understand these potential ways to regenerate hearing better is to have better diagnostics for hearing uh, loss as well. Better diagnostics, better ways of, of measuring the functionality of different parts of the ears are certainly something which is very important. Okay. And I mean, we're, we're talking about it already, but are there different types of hearing loss that you think are, are better candidates for, for hearing re- regeneration than others? Obviously, there's the neuropathic. Yeah, we think, things? for example, from for the, for the cellular approach, the neuropathic deafness is, is probably a much better candidate because the, the nerve is more accessible. And, and as I said, we have shown in as a proof of concept that it, it can be done. The hair cells remains the, the main target, the main aim, but it still is very, very challenging to get there. Uh, there are other cells can, that can fail within the ear, which conceivably could be targeted with the cell therapy approach. And I think that's what it makes the cell therapy approach quite uh, exciting and, and robust, is that if you're losing... If, if you're going to, to, to replace a molecule, you need the whole C2 architecture of the organ in there. You need the cells in place. But if you don't have the cells in place, you need to start from scratch. And that's where the cell therapy really comes into, into, into action. You could conceptually replace different cell types uh, with cells that you have produced in the test tube. Because there are dormant hair cells within within the area, isn't that correct? Uh, well, not dormant. They are not, not, not dormant hair cells. The the idea from the people that wants to use a molecule or a drug is that they expect that there will be cells in the ear, dormant kind of stem cells, mm. cells which can be recruited and make push to become a hair cell, for example. The problem is a lot of evidence, a lot of work has been done in, the, in that area, and it's not really clear that there is such a thing. Mm. Uh, there are certain approaches that look a little bit more promising, but they have been tested mostly in the test tube. Mm. Uh, it has been tested with cells outside the right environment. So, uh, But when you tested them in, in the animal, particularly in the mature old animal, it's not that straightforward. So, that, but but that's the that's the hope that in the same way that other organs have this kind of dormant stem cells, the ear may have. But it's it's not clear that they, it does. So we're, when we're thinking, so we really are thinking, in your opinion, about regeneration is of hair cells is going to be the key thing. So, do you believe that a regeneration of the cells will be a sort of degraded from the initial? Uh, so, so when you've got hundred percent hearing with the, the hair cells, you think it'll be sort of fifty percent. Uh, when the uh, if the regeneration happens, or will it be closer to a hundred? I think probably uh, it will be a a, a gradient, a, 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 a gradual recovery. Uh, it will be really, really uh, amazing that you will be able to get hundred percent recovery. But also because the whole system with normal wear and tear, with normal aging, starts sort of falling apart in a way. So I think. What we, what, we, what we need to, what we aspire to achieve initially at least is a substantial recovery or recovery of such magnitude that it will be meaningful from, for, the, for, the, for the normal functioning of the, of the individual. Uh, but expecting a complete 100% recovery from, from, from the, from the uh, day zero, I think that would probably be, uh, it's very unlikely. It's very, very unlikely. For example, with our strategy, what we have seen in the in the model of neuropathy, it's a recovery of about 
45, 50%, uh, which translates, you say, if from sort of the recovery of, of um, and DBs is, is substantial enough to go from being profoundly deaf to have a kind of deafness that will allow you or, or, or hearing that will allow you to maintain a conversation in a, in a room, for example. Yeah. So it has that kind of implication in real life, but it's not 100% recovery. So do you think that it'll be in the regeneration scenario that the hearing would just come back or do you think there'll be an element of relearning within the brain when the hair cells regenerate? That's a good question. Uh, it all depends, I think, how quickly and how early we can try or, 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 or implement the, 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 the therapy that we are talking about. And also, if it's a patient that has been completely deaf from, from birth, from early childhood, or is something which has been acquired later in life, because obviously the brain will need to sort of relearn and become more plastic to it. But it's, it's a question that mostly is still an answer because we haven't sort of explored that much sort of the, the, the type of regeneration. So changing gear a little bit, whenever I see or read about sort of hearing regeneration, it's often related to different animal models. So we know, for instance, different species of birds can regenerate their hearing. Is, is there any work going to, to learn from, from what we know already exists in the animal kingdom and seeing if it's oh, something we can apply to absolutely, humans? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you brought up there a very, very good point. The, the birth, the, the initial work showing that the birth can regenerate was done uh, in the mid-80s, particularly by, primarily by uh, Ed Rubel's lab and Doug Contange to the independent researchers in the US. It's about 84, 86, if I remember right. Uh, so for the last over 30 years, we have been having a lot of research comparing these models. And, and we have learned a lot, particularly uh, a lot of the molecules which the birth use to regenerate the cells are similar to the ones that are involved during normal development when the ear is being formed. However, it hasn't really identified something that we can clearly touch and, and make the, the, the human or the mammalian ear more like a, a bird one. But there's been a lot of research and, and it has been really, and it still is a very exciting area of investigation because of the, the analogies or the similarities that you can try to extrapolate. Mm. So it's sort of a watch this space, really. We've, yes. We know it can do, but we're yes. not quite sure. But, but it's, the thing is, it's, it's been going on for a while. Yeah. It's not something new. Yeah. Mm. Is one of the impediments maybe that it's not as sophisticated for the hearing in birds? Or is it? Uh, yeah, I, I don't like to use the word sophisticated because I think the birds have a very sophisticated ear anyway. But it's true that the anatomy and the structure is simpler. Uh, and when you look at the structure of the cochlea, the mammalian cochlea, the organ of corti is such a precision, it's such a fantastic piece of engineering, bioengineering, that it, it, it's kind of one of the ideas that we put forward in the past. That sort of the reason why the system cannot repair is because it's so complex. And once it's built, you want to keep it as is, and you have lost this kind of ability to, to regenerate it through evolution, basically. So slightly aside from that, um, thinking about stem cells, I mean, can you explain or is it possible to explain how stem cells can potentially treat hearing loss? One way of that they could do is what we are trying to, to, uh, to drive is once you understand how to work with this, particularly this, this very plastic pluripotent stem cells. But a stem cell is basically a cell that is like a white canvas. It's open to instructions and to produce anything that, that you, you give the instruction to, to make. Uh, 
that's why these induced pluripotent stem cells are very attractive because there are cells could taken from the same patient, you reset them, you reprogram them to become uh, an op- a white canvas, and then you give them the instructions to be the cells that you want them to be. And in this way, you can generate specific cell types for the ear, and, and you can have different, what we call protocols, different recipes to produce uh, a hair cell or, or an inner hair cell even, or an outer hair cell, or a, or a, or a spiral ganglion neuron, whatever. And then you make those cells in the lab, in a test tube, and then you transplant them, and you use that as a therapy. The alternative vision or the alternative use of stem cells, rather than going with cells that you produce ex vivo, that you produce outside of the body, is trying to awaken these cells that we were just talking before, trying to, but the problem is it's not clear that those cells are really in the mature cochlea, or, 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 or they have been very, very refractory to this kind of instruction to be pulled back. But that's, generally speaking, that's the other strategy, trying to see if you can target any sort of endogenous population of stem cells and push them into become the right cell type that you want. And what, what sort of stage is that research at at the moment? The, the using the endogenous cells? Yeah, well, both. Both. Well, the using the the outside cells, it is something that it is in, in this, I would say, preclinical phase, but trying moving forward to clinical trials, that's the kind of thing that we are trying to do. The other strategy, it is also quite advanced in similar thing. I think it's probably at this moment, there are a couple of examples which are a little bit more advanced. They are taking it uh, into clinical trials already. Uh, and we have to watch the space and see what's, what's going on. Uh, it's, it's, it's an open question at the moment. So is that the Regen trial that's happening at UCL? Is yes, that that's doing? one of yes. them, Regen. Uh, and Regain. And Regain, the, the, other, the other trial is the one uh, uh, supported by... Uh, Frequency therapeutics, hmm. which is kind of the different compound, different molecule, but it's kind of similar principle trying to sort of recruit endogenous cells and see if they make the switch. And so both of those are delivered by an injection, aren't they, into tympanically yes. so through the end. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. I was speaking to someone on the uh, Regain trial at a, at a UCLH event, um, and he was describing what happened in a really interesting way. He was saying maybe that type of therapy will almost become like having an operation on your eyes so you don't need glasses. It could almost be that, you know, you use a hearing aid and that's okay for most people, but actually if you want to go that extra level, then you could have, you know, this sort of, um, you know, treatment to to actually regenerate your hearing. And I thought that was an interesting way of viewing it, which I've never thought of before, really. Yes. If that works, it's very attractive, obviously having an injection through through the tympanic medium. The problem is, uh, the, the different compounds, different drugs reach the ear in different ways. And for some things, you need to put the material or the cells or the drug in the right place. So the, the, the tympanic injection is very good for things like you want certainly to deliver to the middle ear, which is the, the intermediate cavity when you have the little ossicles. And some compounds go all the way into the inner ear, but how efficient they go there and how specific they can be. So I think, yes, it's an exciting idea, the, the, the possibility of having like a very short intervention, an injection and off you go, but it's still far from being proven. Mm. So the delivery method could be absolutely as important as the actual um, treatment itself? A, a, a yes, it will be very important and it will be probably combined with, with the agent that you deliver being this a molecule, a gene therapy, like a vital particle or cells, whatever you want to deliver. 
I think here it just shows how many moving parts are needed to come together to show that this type of research is going to work as well. Because I know another very furtive area of um, hearing research at the moment is how you can have different ways to administer drugs further and further into the ear and have a longer life whilst they're there to have some sort of action as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, that's needed, it feels, as well. uh, And and, and that's it has advanced a lot lately, but it still needs more work needs to be done. Just thinking back to when we were talking about the uh, regeneration therapy and the impact it could have, you know, how much hearing you can get back. Do you believe that it will be limited in frequency range or will it be across the whole hearing range? Uh, Again, that is not completely clear. It may depend on the type of therapy or the approach that you follow. Uh, For example, what we have seen with cells are that the best areas are the one closer to the to the place that you injected, so the, the more basal part of the cochlea, but you have recovery all across as well. So, uh, but but yet that could be that could vary depending on what you delivery and how you delivery and 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 the type of uh, background condition as well. Were you, be, were you able to do um, any testing of um, frequencies in the gerbil model? Yes. 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 And that, that's that's the test I'm referring to. So right. you you get particularly. Uh, the kind of mid frequency, mid high frequency range, but you can see a, a trend at least of recovery in the other frequencies as well. Cells seem to be f- reading the cues in the environment and finding their way. So it's almost in sort of tandem with the mid ranges where we actually need it. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely, absolutely. Which if if you're going from the obviously from the base of the cochlea, that's kind of the closer to the target as well. Yeah. So other. Any other known factors such as age or time elapsed since noise exposure that could influence the success of hearing restoration? Yes. Uh, potentially those factors are going to have an impact. It's, it's likely that the system that is very uh, young and still plastic will react in a different way from a system that is more mature and with everything has been set. And also that when longer time has passed from, let's say, the initial, particularly if there is a, a, an identifiable uh, cause of them, that like an autotoxic drug or something that and it happened in the past, uh, that, that time that has today may have a, an impact. Uh, we have explored that a little bit in our system, uh, but not sort of very, very long term. But and the, 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 the condition that we have explored don't seem to be having a very obvious consequence, but they are, they are still in a kind of like more uh, short-term kind of damage. Uh, but but the, the the long-term probably, for example, there was some work with the the work that has been pursued now at the clinical level on the use of a virus for the induction of ATO1, which is a gene that will drive in theory the conversion of the hair cells. And that that type of strategy seems to be very, very dependent on the time of injury because the gene seems to be doing the trick of making the switch only when the cells, what is called the supporting cells, are very receptive, very competent to do the act. If you let the time pass a little bit longer, those cells change and then they will not be receptive to do the, 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 the resetting and becoming a, a cell. 
So some of that, I know it's slightly different, but it's almost linked to what we know about using a hearing aid or assisting with hearing now, that the longer you leave it, the harder it is to, yes, to take action. Yes, and, and that probably is also to do with the case of the hearing aids and the prosthetic devices, it's about to do with, with the rest of the pathways. Mm. The, the, the thing that we were talking before about being less plastic on mm. the, 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 the central auditory pathway. Yeah, and what you say about... Um, Hearing loss after ototoxicity is interesting as well, because I guess that opens a very um, straightforward pathway to test some of this almost really, and that you know there's a potential way to give insults and and to always creating that hearing loss, so therefore something you can test yeah, in, a, is, in a very robust the, way. The use of ototoxic drugs is a very use, very commonly used model in in at least in the in the research environment. Mm. Uh, it's been explored also in the clinical setting, but in the clinical setting. Is more used uh, for the development of auto protection, which is the other area. There is a lot of activity uh, of different groups trying to develop drugs that you can administer with non autotoxic drugs, for example, antibiotics or chemotherapy drugs, and trying to minimize the damage that these drugs are known to cause. But that's a different story. It's more auto protection rather than regeneration as such. So one thing which is actually been a, a popular topic on the Turnitus Talk Forum um, is what 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 you're aware of and what do you know about the efficacy of um, of platelet-rich plasma injections into the tympanic membrane as a regenerative treatment? Yes, uh, I'm not very aware of any kind. Of, I think I've seen a single paper when they have explored that in vitro again in a test tube. Uh, and they have some interesting findings, but they are nothing. I haven't seen any data coming from uh, an animal model from any sort of impact or effect. I know that uh, I think it's even in certain part of the world it's being offered as a as a treatment. Uh, and I have to say I haven't seen any data published or communicated in conferences that will support that strategy is probably a little bit premature at this stage. Something in development effectively, which uh, a watch this space sort of thing. Uh, yes, but it's always a little bit of a concern if it's being applied uh, sort of clinically without a bulk of evidence. Because obviously, as we were saying before, all these developments take quite a bit of work in the lab, and then you do the transition to a different stage so you have to have a bulk of evidence to support that. And, and you'd want to see the safety data as well, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. I guess, we don't, do we know if that exists at the moment? Or? Uh, I, I, I haven't seen anything regarding that type of mm. therapy, no. no. Okay, and are, are there any reasons why injections of stem cells would be dangerous or unwise into the ear? There is always the concern because it's a new therapy, it's a new thing that's going to be tried in the ear, but we... Are, as I said, we are developing and are doing a lot of the right tests and the right controls. And we are, in a way, in a very nice scenario because although it hasn't been done in the ear, there are people which have been trying similar type of stem cell therapy in other fields, for example, the eye, the, the macular degeneration. Uh, there's been uh, also some developments for uh, conditions like Parkinson and and, and at a clinical level, and none of these studies have shown any kind of adverse effect or side effect that will concern us. But obviously, we have to be uh, careful, and, and we are doing all the right sort of controls and experiments in order to, to control and minimize that. I guess uh, what you call the million-dollar question, um, and 
I think we we say we're, I don't know if we mentioned actually you're not an expert in tinnitus, but um, you you operate sort of around that field of research. Uh, do you believe that regenerating hearing will actually resolve tinnitus? Yeah, and and that's very important to emphasize that I'm not an expert in tinnitus. I don't directly work in tinnitus, so uh, don't take me to account on that one. <laughs> but I would say I, I I am in the in the area in the field, and I would say probably yes in the sense that tinnitus, you know very well, that is a very complex condition uh, and it's produced by problems at different levels in the in the pathway. But one of the things which have a very close association is the damage of the auditory organ. And it's very closely linked to hearing loss. So we think that if, if hearing loss can be repaired sort of biologically and you have a way of kind of resetting and controlling the, the input into the auditory system, then it could have a very positive impact in tinnitus. But again, it's a different type of tinnitus and may have, may help some, but not others. And it has that kind of uncertainty as well. But I think on the whole, and if you ask me for a very simplistic answer, I would say probably yes, it will have a positive impact. So from what you said, it's, it's going to have a positive impact, I guess, where the causation is is something auditory related or are we yes, believe it's something yes, to do with the ear. Yes, it yeah. will be different if it's more central and if mm. there are other uh, sort of... Uh, Parse effect, basically. And so, you know, looking at, at what else is happening in, in the sort of field so so widely, I mean, we've, we've spoken a little bit about, um, you know, why, why the, the pace is, is, is slow. I mean, what, what trials do you see progressing? Where do you think we'll see the next in human trials of, of some of the therapies that we've discussed? What, what do you mean? What, what, uh, where are we going to see them in specifically uh, the, the the type of trial, the type of uh, age? Yeah, just a, a little bit of speculation, I guess. But, you know, which ones do we think are, are promising and looking like they're going along the pathway to, to yeah, a reasonable I th- speed? I, th- I think probably we're going to see trials in the if in the three different disciplines. I think we're going to see trials uh, on, the, on the gene therapy area, using viral vectors to deliver genes. And, and that... They, th- that particular type of trial will have two aims or will be two, two type of, of work. One, which is targeting a very specific genetic condition. So you have a deficiency in a gene and then you're trying to replace that gene with a healthy version and hopefully targeting problems that have a, what is called a late onset. So if the, the gene sort of falls apart by the age of 25, then you have a nice window of treating that patient before that. But it's very specific to that group to that gene, to that particular problem. Then with gene therapy, there is this idea about these kind of genes like 801 that you could trigger that and use it for regeneration. But we discussed that, that that's very dependent also having the right cells receiving that gene. But that I think there will be uh, trials. There's one already going on at least, and there will be more coming from that space. Uh, molecules, there will be also uh, investigation. Most of the stuff that will come probably will be more about uh, autoprotection, as hmm. I said. Uh, and then we hoping to be able to drive also the, the cell therapy angle and see cell replacement as a in, into the clinic or into the clinical trials. So, so different things happening really yes, at different yes, speeds, different, but promi- different strategies, mm. different flavors. Mm. So, we, we talked a little bit earlier about where you are in terms of the safety profile and moving to the next stage. How long, in your opinion, do you think it'll be before we've actually got things coming to market that are going to be widely available? 
<laughs> That's very difficult to say because yeah. we don't know, we hope that everything will go really well during the clinical trials, but that could be another sort of area which things may expand and take longer. But assuming that everything goes a plan, going through the different, considering the time that we need in order to get into the phase one, two, a sort of trial, and then moving into the phase two and phase three, we think probably maybe in the region of maybe eight to 10 years until something can be available in the market. How much do you think it'd cost um, as well? Because, you know, that's that's the other level on this, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if it's possible to say at it the moment. It is very difficult to predict at this stage. But on the general view or my view is, I think it's even if something is very costly initially, uh, we have examples of other technologies when things with the technology has got better and more efficient cost goes down and becomes more affordable. But there, it's a very complex sort of calculation. So I really... Very, very difficult for me to, to do any sort of estimate on that. Especially because we don't quite know what healthcare will look like in eight to 10 years anyway. Exactly, so, yeah. so yeah, maybe other things have moved on too. Um, and, you know, linked to that, I mean, this feels at the moment like a, a quite an active field or a number of universities and a number of biotech companies really active in this space. Um, can you say anything about the sort of different sources of funding available? Do you think there's enough money there to, to really keep this going at the, the pace needed? Or? Well, unfortunately, probably not in the sense that there is money out there and there is the, 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 the public funds have been supporting this type of research, sort of charities have been supporting this type of work. But the problem is on the, on the public funds, you always compete with conditions which are perceived as a far more, uh, a larger priority. If you, conditions which are life-threatening, for example. So when you go to a major research council discussion, you have to compete with sort of severe neurodegeneration, uh, with uh, cardiovascular uh, conditions, with cancer. So healing loss definitely has always been kind of in that position, which is like, yeah, okay, it's important, but it's not at that level. So that makes the competition more difficult. Uh, and the 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 industrial uh, investment always always been very very challenging. But I think we've seen now in the last few years uh, a, a new interest and um, sort of the industry is coming into this space. And 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 because they see they see the potential, they think that not much has been uh, done, but there is a lot of things coming in the pipeline. And I think it looks uh, uh, in that sense, I think it's a very nice scenario and very optimistic. But it's the funding is always sort of. Difficult, particularly when you want to take something, what, what we call the blue sky research. You have an idea and you want to explore it, but it could be it could be revolutionary or it could, or it could fail tomorrow. It's, yeah. it's something very, very new. And that kind of research, fundamental basic research, is quite difficult to yeah. get the right funding. And to me, as someone who's been around the tinnitus and hearing loss research for the last 10 years, it feels, especially in the last three to five years, the pharmacological and the hearing regeneration research in particular is really sophisticated and matured a lot. It does feel like there's been a lot of progress made. Um, but yeah, it, it now feels like it's almost at that stage where the major investments needed for those big trials to really push it into inhuman, that's, it's it's mega bucks, I guess, isn't yes. it? It's, it's yes. big amounts of money that's needed for that. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of that, you've recently um, got a research grant, haven't you? Yes, we we got a, a, a research grant uh, from different bodies, but also we have been we're very excited because very recently we managed to spin out uh, a, a biotechnological company from the University of Sheffield, 
with support from different uh, industrial investors, and 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 something which uh, we are really really excited because we think it's a way of being able to take this all the way into uh, the clinical trial into the patient. Because as we were saying before, trying to do that with conventional funding streams, it will be very difficult, if not impossible, because even with funding streams, the conventional research councils will want to see you sort of, what are your plans? So how, how this will go all the way? Because at one point they need to basically let it go. And and I think the the we're very happy now that we are sort of just spun out a company which is called Rinri, and the aim is trying to develop stem cell therapies for the treatment of hearing loss. Oh, excellent! So again, that that's something it's vitally important because I mean, you're you're much more open to private funding and you can grow the company and and really push the research forward. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, and congratulations on that as well. It sounds like you had some you. significant <laughs> funding to start it off, and uh, and so what what should be the first things we should look for from Rinri? What are the sort of signs that we'll see that it's it's succeeding in the trials? Well, sort of we we are doing uh, a bit of the. the the word that was called the preclinical word that will need to take us to the trial. Uh, and then we're hoping to be able to get into the trials. Uh, so hopefully you will hear from us and, and you will sort of, everything will go well, but it's, it's, it's early to say sort of, but uh, we, that's, that's our, our aim and we're working really hard trying to get there. Excellent. And we really look forward to following your progress as well. Thank you. Yeah. In terms for the listeners, is, it, what, is there a website available now, somewhere where people can keep up to speed on? It's, all this is very, very new. So we have uh, a very sort of uh, basic website at the moment. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you Google Rinri Therapeutics, it will take you to a page when the, the, the kind of like a, a, an initial portal. But I hope, we are hoping to develop and to establish that in the next few months. So you'll have more information there. So thank you very much, Marcelo. That's absolutely fantastic. We've uh, definitely learned a lot during the time we've been doing that. A lot of information, I think, for the listeners to take in as well. Thank you very much for appearing and thank you as well, David, for co-hosting. No, and thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really sort of uh, very happy to be here to have the opportunity to explain a little bit what we're doing in the lab. And well, hopefully we'll have uh, some exciting news in the near future from us. No, thank you. Really exciting uh, sort of run through what's happening with hearing regeneration. And, and I think there's real hope for, for people living with tinnitus that there may, be, there may be something there for them too. Absolutely. Thank you. Wow. We were just so lucky to hear about Professor Revolta's cutting-edge research. I hope you too enjoyed this episode. I'm here with Hazel, our director, to briefly talk a bit about the Tinnitus Talk podcast, why we are doing it, what our plans are, so if you're interested in a little bit of a behind-the-scenes kind of thing, keep listening. If not, well, you are excused. Hey, Sal, before we talk about the podcast in general, can I just ask you about your impressions of the Marcello interview that we listened to just now? Yeah, of course. Um, I have to admit, it's a kind of a new topic for me, but I learned a lot. And um, we just felt we had to do a, an episode on this topic because we got so many requests from members who feel really strongly um, that that hearing regeneration is where the solution to tinnitus will come from. Um, and it's clear it's a field that is has really sort of exploded in the past few years with many different approaches. Uh, there's stem cells, there's gene therapy. Uh, there's also different ways of targeting 
uh, hearing regeneration, so you can target it at the hair cells, damaged hair cells in the cochlea or at the nerve that connects the ear and the brain. Actually, Marcello seemed to think that that was a more promising avenue. So yeah, I learned a lot. Um, I also heard him say that it, his estimate was it will be eight to 10 years before we get something on the market available to patients, which does seem like a long time. Um, but, and a part of me wonders whether even that is, is um, maybe optimistic. I don't know. Uh, but we do have a couple of clinical trials, of course, going on. I think they were mentioned in the interview, frequency therapeutics, regain. So hopefully those will pan out and we'll actually get something on the market soon. Um, in the meantime, we also know that there are already experimental treatments being offered in certain countries. Uh, for instance, a couple of the mem members of um, our forum, the Tinnitus Talk Forum, uh, have traveled to South Korea to get um, PRP injections, that's platelet-rich plasma injections, into the ear. I wouldn't per se recommend anyone else to do that since it is experimental, but it does show that when people are desperate enough, and of course tinnitus can make you very desperate, um, they will go to great trouble and expense and, and try anything, basically. Yeah, uh, I agree. And I, I still see today um, research funding going into things, well, less and less every year, I think, but there's still a, a CPT mindfulness. Just recently, someone posted about uh, some mindfulness study being funded. And I think we should really start focusing completely on the on research that uh, aims to cure or effectively treat tinnitus, reduce the volume, reduce the intrusiveness uh, instead of these psychological measures. And what comes to these experimental treatments like the one in South Korea, it tells me that the noise is so much more than just a little nuisance. You have uh, lost so much to this noise you have you might have lost your job you have lost your family even and uh friendships and it affects your social relations so you you really want to try everything in your power and it doesn't surprise me that people uh, want to attempt these experimental treatments and uh but yeah overall we need more studies we need more research into this and i hope that the current united organizations and other hearing related organizations focus solely on the cure aspects. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to move on to talk about the podcast. Um, and I wanted to actually ask you, Marco, what um, inspired you to, to want to start this, but maybe a, a bit of background for the listeners. So you actually uh, created Tinnitus Talk. And when I say Tinnitus Talk, I'm actually referring to the online support forum. Uh, which has been around for much longer than this podcast, um, eight years ago. Uh, and you've worked on it tirelessly since and um, done a lot for the tinnitus community. Why did you also want to, to start a podcast? Well, the podcast originally was Steve and my idea. Uh, Steve actually... It was, I think, in 2016, he interviewed Will Setley, a UK-based researcher, and we never got to publishing that one. But then uh, late last year, Jack Straw, one of our Tinnitus Talk members, he 
came up with the idea for a podcast and we told him that we already had one episode uh, recorded before, but we'd really be interested in uh, starting a series. And he was, he had, he has such a good radio voice and he's very enthusiastic. Uh, one of our best volunteers really. And uh, we, well, I and you uh, thought that of course we'll go with this and we'll try what comes of it. And because we have the contacts with the research community, we have a wide network of people who want to be interviewed. Uh, I thought bringing those messages, those experiences, the research side, as well as uh, how tinnitus is managed at the moment around the world, would be interesting to our listeners. So uh, I'm really happy we got this off the ground and I look forward to many more episodes in the future. Yeah, same here. So what are your feelings about the podcast so far? I think we have four episodes out. Uh, this would be the fifth. So um, has it met your expectations? Oh, yeah. So it's a lot more work than we thought. <laughs> yeah. I think you added up the hours and it's it's about 70, 80, 80 hours per episode. And that seems ridiculous probably to others. Uh, but the amount of work that you first put into the planning and contacting people, deciding the time slots, uh, often you have to have like these test recordings, testing their equipment, coming up with the questions, asking our members, uh, curating those questions, sending them to the people who to be interviewed, and uh, then uh, the actual recording the day of that. Then we have to edit it. That alone takes quite a bit of time when you want to do the editing properly and to make it sound nice and remove all the unnecessary bits. Uh, and then the publishing. I mean, once you have edited it, you still have to uh, create these text snippets, graphics, uh, put everything on our tinatostock.com slash podcast webpage and create the forum thread. It's a lot of work. And uh, I, I hope people under appreciate that we do this. But also, I think the response has been way better than we thought, uh, that, that uh, than we ever imagined it would be. So we have had about 25,000 listeners per episode. And this has far ex exceeded our expectations. I'm we are all very happy that we have uh, gotten this uh, pretty significant group of people listening to every one of our episodes. So Hazel, you have been following closely the reactions to our podcast, engaging with listeners online. How do you feel about it? Have there been a lot of negative reactions or has it mostly been positive? Yeah, so after each episode comes out, I always try to do a bit of follow-up and engage with listeners uh, on our own forum, on Facebook groups, etc. And um, so far, it's been overwhelmingly positive. People are happy that we're doing this. Uh, no one has said, uh, you know, I hate the podcast or anything like that. Um, but yeah, not every episode will appeal to everyone, right? So there's a certain group out there that maybe only wants to hear about the research and not about tinnitus management. So they won't like episodes that don't focus on research. So you can't always please everyone. And I guess we're just trying to appeal to a uh, broad audience. And so far, um, you know, we've only been able to cover a few topics, but we aim to cover a lot more and let the, uh, the listener responses inform uh, what we cover. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about our future plans for the podcast to follow up on the what we have in the cards for guests and so forth. So what do we have in the pipeline? Yeah, in the pipeline, uh, well, there's actually a couple of episodes that have already been recorded, but we still have to um, edit and publish them. 
so I interviewed two of the co-authors of the new European Clinical Practice Guidelines for tinnitus. So that's coming out. Let me cut you here because I think we had an issue with that episode specifically. The audio quality I struggled with and I worked on that tirelessly for like 20, 30 hours. You did. So we will see if we can publish it because the quality is, in my opinion, low. But uh, maybe the content is worthwhile. So True, yes. Marco has very high quality standards. standards so, um, indeed. <laughs> um, we did an interview with the chief scientific officer of Cognoseta, which is a small drug development company aiming to develop, to develop a drug for tinnitus. Um, we also, or I interviewed when I was in Taipei for the uh, Tinnitus Research Initiative Conference, uh, TRI, I interviewed the chief scientific coordinator of TRI, uh, Winfried Schley. Uh, we also we talked mainly with him about uh, how to involve patients in research, something we feel very strongly about. So those are three episodes that are already recorded and coming out. And then we have quite a few people who have agreed or tentatively agree, but we still have to schedule something with them and actually do the recording. So most likely we will have someone on from the Hearing Health Foundation uh, also talking about hearing regeneration. So in a way, hearing regeneration part two episode. Uh, we will be interviewing Brian Pollard, the president of Hyperacusis Research, and really do an episode dedicated to hyperacusis. Um, Susan Shore agreed to be on the podcast, but probably that will be later in the year when she has published her data. So she's developing a new treatment for tinnitus on, based on bimodal neuromodulation. And Thanos Tsonopoulos agreed to be on. He received a $2 million dollar grant from the U.S. Department of Defense to develop a new tinnitus drug. So yeah, some exciting guests uh, coming up. Yeah, and on top of that, we have got a lot of feedback from listeners with suggestions. For those who don't know, we actually have this dedicated thread on tinnitusdoc.com where you can uh, submit your ideas for future guests and topics we should discuss. And one is many years disease. We also have natural remedies and scams. Uh, as many of you know, tinnitus is ripe with scams. There's promises of a cure and effective treatments, but many of those don't have any uh, scientific basis. And uh, I think it's important we can teach our listeners how to spot pseudoscience and actually not waste their money on something that definitely will not work. Uh, we have a probably an episode on sound therapies and educating doctors. I think most of us would agree that when we go see a doctor, they might not be all that glued up on tinnitus and their attitude might really be lacking. So if we can have an episode on what patients expect from their doctors and we can then share that with the, uh, with the doctors and professionals, that can be something really tangible that we can do for the benefit of the patients. And we will follow up on all the ideas and suggestions we have. And I hope you will be keep sending them in. And besides that, we also want to try new formats. So uh, we will have panel discussions and shorter segments. We might have uh, our listeners call in live uh, to talk with us, tell their experiences, ask questions, maybe interact with the 
researchers or whoever we have in future episodes. And I look forward to all of that. And we are now, this is our fifth episode. And at the end of this year, I hope we are maybe at 10 or so, and you have been uh, with us all that time. So Hazel, can you also tell us a bit about your recent experiences at the TRI conference? TRI stands for Tinnitus Research Initiative. Uh, it was this year in Taipei. Uh, it was held in May. Uh, Hazel was there for a full week. So please tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, I was very lucky to be there. Uh, I was one of the very few patient representatives there. And I think it's so important that patients get to attend these events and report back to the patient community about it. Uh, we were very lucky to get some funding from Frontiers, the academic magazine publisher, to be there. Um, it was very hectic for me because I wanted to listen to the talks and interview people and network. It was uh, really too much. But um, I wrote a blog post about sort of my assessment of the conference, some positive and some negative critique. You can find it on tinnitushub.com under blog. Um, and But I'm most excited about all the video interviews that I conducted with lots of different researchers. I think we have over a dozen, maybe even 18 or so individual interviews with some big names as well, like Susan Shore talking about her new treatment, Dirk de Ritter talking about brain stimulation, um, Joseph Rauschecker, um, well, lots of names. So yeah, that's something I, hopefully for everyone to look forward to um, and get a taste of, of the conference. And I'm very excited about next year because it will be in Vancouver and it will be much easier to go with a few more people because we have Tinnitus Stock members based there who can hopefully volunteer, be, be part of our volunteer team, and we, we can then cover it much more extensively. So really looking forward to that. Cool. That sounds so awesome. Hazel, I personally, and on behalf of the whole Tinnitus community, want to thank you that you keep doing this for all of us. The, the fact that you traveled to Taipei by yourself, uh, you handled most of that, well, all of it by yourself, except for the video guy who we hired, but still, it was an amazing effort. And um, what have you what you have done for in the past year for the Tinnitus Talk community and the overall Tinnitus communities um, is something I'm very proud of. And I look forward to working with you in the future as well. And we make a very good team. <laughs> we do, absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so before we wrap up, I would like to remind everyone that you can actually become a Patreon supporter of the Tinnitus Talk podcast. It won't cost you a lot. It's as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. Besides ourselves, I, Hazel, and Jack Straw supporting the podcast financially, we now have eight other supporters, for which we are very thankful. But we, to make this even better and to be able to maybe travel to meet guests and get better equipment, we would really appreciate your support. So you can find more information about this on our podcast website at tinatustock.com slash podcast. Just look for the donate button uh, at the top of the site. I would like to thank you everyone for tuning into this episode. I would like to thank Steve and David Stockdale, of course, Marcelo Rivolta for taking time out of his busy schedule to take part in the interview. Okay, thanks everyone. Catch you next time. Bye-bye. Okay, let's cut there. Okay. 
Yeah, and and save it, save it, don't delete, save. Yeah, so those who are still listening, there's sometimes this issue where I uh, <laughs> where I have deleted a recording because I wasn't too happy with how I said. <laughs> because I'm not a native English speaker and I really, really, really oh, like a judgmental oh. of how I say things. But yeah. okay, so oh, now we will cut, cut really. Okay. <laughs>